Now, podcasting to Ottawa Senator fans around the world. Around the world. It's the Sins Nation Podcast. From praising Alfie to Brady Kachuk and everything in between. If it matters to Sins fans, we're talking about it right here. And now, here's Steve Warren. All right, thank you, Brock Mantooth. Looks like he's lost a little weight, Greg. He looks like he's <laughs> really? lost some weight. Yes, it's great news. Well done, Brock. <laughs> anyway, coming up today, we got former Senator Todd White jumping in with us. We'll talk about the NHL playoffs, the bubble. Uh, the lottery is coming up on Monday. It's going to be a very short broadcast if they're going to put that thing on TV. And one pick and done. Uh, we'll get into some uh, other NHL playoff takes, get uh, Whitey's take on things. So loads to get to over the course of the show. Uh, Coach Craig, how are things, my friend? Very good. Thank you, Stephen. And you? Everything is good. Yeah, no problems here. It's just All very right. weird to be watching this much hockey in the month of August, isn't it? You sound like you're complaining. What is no. that? Well, it, it's weird. That's all. I'm only complaining oh. of the weirdness, but I, I like it. I tell you, I've learned how to speed watch. That fast forward button works, man. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's got their PVR working overtime and uh, most of it's staggered, though. So that's been good, right? Yeah. I like there's not there's very little uh, what are you overlapping is the word, I guess. So but this weekend with the PGA on at the same time, there might be some creative PVR work going on. No doubt. Uh, Our guest today played four seasons with the Mighty Senators, a true local. He grew up in Ottawa, makes his home here as well. Uh, Scored 144 points in 230 games with the Sens, and he makes his Sens Nation debut here today. It is Todd White. Whitey, how are you, my friend? Doing great. Just like you guys, glad to see some hockey on uh, on TV and uh, been following along. So looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, no doubt. And and you've been in the rinks, the rinks back, uh, you know, working with the kids, right? Yeah, a little bit of minor hockey stuff. Obviously, uh, it's going to be a different year, different start to the year, but uh, back in the rinks a little bit, and uh, it's great to get uh, to get back on the ice. Have you been on, Todd, or just the kids? You, you've gone on the ice? Yeah, I've been on the ice a little bit. Uh, I rented kind of an hour a week I was, I was renting, and uh, I kind of stopped that. And, uh, but I've been helping out a, uh, at the Senseplex a little bit, doing a couple of different programs that I've been doing there. So... Uh, Okay, well, I, I did a session a couple of weeks ago with the 14 people maximum, including me, on the ice. Yeah, for me, I, I, well, when I started, it was, not, what, that nine and me. I was allowed nine kids and, and myself on the ice whenever I started. So uh, it's different, but obviously we're in different times. But uh, it's just great. The kids are enjoying being back on the ice, that's for sure. Good. Yeah, this is certainly, you know, a good opportunity uh, since we're in this mode right now. We'll get to the NHL playoff stuff as well. But I I would like to get a thought from both of you because so many of our listeners have kids in minor hockey. Like, what do you think the new minor hockey landscape is going to look like, guys? You guys are both high-level coaches. Um, What do you think minor hockey is going to look like here come the fall? Well, you know, I, I don't know exactly. I, I know like the, the AAA level, uh, it seems like they're going to be doing some sort of development sessions. Uh, they're going to somehow make a, a bubble of, uh, you know, a bunch of kids are going to be a part of a bubble and they skated together, I guess, with the with the coach of the team. And once, if, if there's a go ahead in terms of, you know, getting back to normalcy, then I guess, uh, you know, they'll have formal tryouts and, and go from there in terms of picking the team for, for regular season. But 
Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely different times, and and right now the, you know, to me it's not the end of the world in terms of uh, not playing games right now. I think that you know being able to do development sessions and extra practice time is fine, but there is going to come a time where the kids are going to get itching to to play some games for sure. What do you think, Greg? Well, I, I keep hearing that the uh, novice Adam, maybe even Pee Wee, they're talking about maybe just playing three on three at some point. But double A, triple A, they wanna they wanna try to have full regular everyday five on five hockey. But uh, what are we in? We're in phase three now. It seems to me that that's probably part of a phase four if there is such a thing at some point in time. I think we're a ways away from full fledged five on five hockey, aren't we? Well, it depends where you are. I know that there's been players that are, that go to uh, other provinces and uh, and play five on five hockey, and they've been doing it for weeks now. So uh, it kind of depends on on where you are in this in the states as well. I know that there's tournaments going on that that, that my son was supposed to be a part of, but obviously early in June, uh, the team that he was a part of, you know, canceled out of that tournament because it was uh, in the states. But yeah, it's just uh, in Ontario here. I don't know when uh, when we'll get back up and running. The, the one thing is, is that you know, w- with with house league, um, I, I don't know. Like I know at older house leagues, there's there tends not to be as many practices, mostly just games. I think with with older house leagues, and I don't know exactly what'll happen with that because of the fact that right now it's no games. It'll be all practices, so it's a different animal for sure. I think we're still at a wait and see time right now, probably as to exactly what's going to come. Yeah, and I'd say, uh, you know, my coaching days are behind me, um, but I can represent the beer leaguer in this conversation. And I know there's lots of beer leaguers who are wondering, you know, what's happening there. And uh, I'm hearing, you know, Carha is in the mix, obviously. And there's some discussion about that you can return to play potentially this fall, but you have to be with like the same 50 guys, if you can picture that, meaning guys who play in multiple leagues there's at least discussion right now that that may not be allowed i don't know how you're going to monitor that exactly but it it is possible that they may force guys to and women to just be in one league so that would be interesting as well you got to rely on federal government but then also with the provincial has a has a voice in all of this right and so does municipal so you like like todd says some provinces probably are at five on five and regular stuff you go to Quebec, there's five-on-five five tournaments. They've been going on for three weeks. Yeah, I wonder what, uh, you know, Ontario obviously has got a different viewpoint than Quebec, and I'm sure the city of Ottawa is, maybe end up being different from other cities across the province too. So who knows how it's all going to play out. The one thing that I'd heard people, just obviously just uh, people talking, was the idea that, like, I know that they talked, I, I heard uh, when the Ontario government came out with kind of the return to play thing a, a little while ago, they talked about that 50 person league or whatever, a men's league could go on, but it would have to be four teams of 12 people or whatever. And, you know, I've heard other people talk about with hockey, like, could you not do something where you pit two teams to, like have just practices till October 1st and then October 1st till the 15th, two teams are paired up to play each other maybe five times over a 15 day period and then from October 15th to the end of the month, you quarantine again just with your team. And then November 1st, you start up again. You'd play, you know, you just within a group of, and so then your group would be, what, 34 people, right? right. So just kind of a, an idea like that. I've heard people kind of uh, just, you know, spitballing uh, different ideas. So I, I don't know whether something like that would ever come to fruition. But uh, again, it uh, you, you know, you see, you see other sports are, are, are back. You know, there's baseball games I, I see and, and things like that. So they're they're out in the field playing games. So it's we'll, we'll see when hockey gets going again. 
All right, on to the NHL now, the Stanley Cup playoffs in full swing. Uh, We did not have a show last week. Apologies for that. This is the first time we've had a chance to chat, Greg, since since the playoffs began. And uh, I'd be keen to get Todd's take on things as a former NHL player. Can you envision, Todd, what it must be like for the players to play in these circumstances? You got the bubble off the ice. You got no fans. The stands are all tarped up. Like, can you envision what it must be like compared to when you played in the Stanley Cup playoffs for these guys? Are, are you joking because I played in Atlanta? <laughs> <laughs> in all seriousness, uh, I think production-wise, I think the TV's been very good in terms of the atmosphere that they're putting putting forth. I think that that's you don't notice it as much. I think you'd notice it a lot more, the lack of atmosphere, if you're in the building without the you know, the, the, the same kind of feeling and in the, but I think that the TV production has done a good job of making you feel like there's atmosphere there. Um, but it, it is definitely different, uh, in terms of, but again, they're playing for the Stanley cup finals. I know from watching myself, I am much more into the games that mean something and not just the ones. And I, and again, I totally disagree with the idea of the, the, the round Robin that like Boston gets, what are their 10 points clear of the other teams? And yet they're now probably getting up in third or fourth in their, in their conference. So uh, I just not into those games as much as I am the ones that actually mean something, the, uh, the games that are the elimination ones. I thought it would have been interesting if you'd let those four top teams play, but have them start with the point total they had back when the season ended. So that Boston with 110 points was guaranteed first. Nobody was going to catch them. But have Tampa start with 92, Washington at 90, Philly at 89, play the round robin and see those three teams maybe move up and down two, three, and four. But they finish one, two, three, four differently than they do now, obviously. But Boston stays at one because they're 110 points ahead. Reward them with something, right? Mm -hmm. And in the West, I think it's 94, 92. I think St. Louis was two up on Colorado. So play the four games, you get points, two points or three points or whatever per game, and then see what the standings are at the end of the round robin. Yeah, well, I, I completely agree. I just think it's uh, it, it's unfair to teams that had great regular seasons to to do this. I I even, it's unfortunate that it, right now it potentially could be the five seeds are getting beaten out by, by 12 seeds. And uh, so, you know, to me that again is is not really uh you know great for for the you know the games going forward i think it would have been really compelling to see pittsburgh with the star power that they have and edmonton with the star power that they have to see them going forward but it it might not happen but for for the one to four i think there should have been some mechanism whether you're in first place you start off with three points two points one point and zero points and you, you get a head start on the fourth place team where they'd have to basically go three and oh to uh you know something like that just something to tweak it where there is something based on those 70 games they played that that matters because uh, and, and again the one thing is it's going to be reseeded every uh every round so if you get first place you could if there's if there's two upsets you'll be you, you know you're playing the, the upset teams as you go forward like anybody be salivating to play Montreal versus having to play Pittsburgh. So, you know, I, I just think it's not, uh, it's not great the way they've done it with the one to four. I lo- I don't mind the, the other, I think that, you know, the, the way they've set up the bubble and everything, I think that they've done a very good job. I just think that they've been a little bit unfair with, with that. And I also, with the, uh, the other part that I criticize is the, the, the lottery and how a team who's going to lose out here, who had a chance to play for the Stanley cup 
this year is getting a chance. I think they should have done a thing where one to seven, you guys are the only ones who have a chance at number one. Two and three, yeah, the teams who lose out, they can be a part of that part of the draft, but not the number one part. That's a good point. It's interesting you mentioned the 5-12 matchups and the potential upsets. How do you think the NHL is feeling right now where potentially you've got Crosby, Malkin, and McDavid Dreisaitl, arguably, you know, four of the top six players in the league who aren't even going to be around and come, come the playoffs? One of the reasons that they wanted to do that, I think, was Chicago, Montreal markets were pretty appealing to them. You know, I think it was, well, we'll see what happens. I think that there's there's still some hockey to be played. I watched last night's game and I thought that Pittsburgh, I thought, had a pretty good, uh, you know, first half of the game. And then Montreal kind of, I think we always would hear about in Edmonton days where Grant Fuhr would make the, the save to not allow them to get down, you know, they're down 3-1, not to get down 4-1. And I thought that's what Price did last night. He kept it close. And and then, uh, you know, they ended up chipping away and getting a bad goal to, to win it. So we'll see what happens in, in uh, it, it happens sometimes, obviously, in a best of seven where a team wins game five and you think, oh, they've got it. I can remember a, uh, a game that I played in where we... Daniel Alfredson rubbed out Darcy Tucker along the boards, just a little oh. love tap. Glorious, glorious play. <laughs> and we won the game. Came came back for a game, uh, for a, for a game six, I guess it was. And uh, you know they ended up winning two straight to to beat us out. So let me ask you about that play. Have you ever talked to Alfie about that play? Like this. Does he go into it saying, I don't know what everybody's talking about, it was a clean hit, or does he say with a sly grin, I may have done a little something, something there? Well, well again, it's that's kind of a gray area in terms of, uh, you know, I think that it would be even more, it would be worse now the way, you know, we, we view hits like that now, right? Because it, right, you're right. coming from the blind side, he doesn't know you're there, you're hitting him, you're not hitting him from behind, but the reality is, is the way your momentum throws him into the boards, it, it looks worse than... You know, at, at that time, may, you know, maybe it wasn't that bad back then, but I think you'd look at it worse now. But no, I never asked him about it because uh, I just, it's so funny because that's one hit that always gets brought up by Toronto fans. They can't, that one of the reasons that they, they can't stand, uh, you know, I think that one is a big one for Toronto fans. The Alfie hit on Tucker and Alfie pretending he was going to throw the broken stick <laughs> right. is the other one that kind of really, uh, you know, bugs them. It's the fourth time he's not going to the Hall of Fame, uh, fourth snub this year. We'll get back to the playoffs here in a second. But we talk Alfie, and I'm going to get distracted, obviously, Whitey. So were you, uh, were you a little disappointed for him, surprised that uh, that fourth time wasn't the charm either? Well, again, I don't know what goes on in those, in those meetings in the sense that do you – is it based purely on who is the most deserving or do you say, you know what, this guy's like, you know, a guy like Marion Hosev, you know, first time eligible. He's going to have, he'll be able to get in the next couple of years. It's Alfie's time this, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what they, what their thought process is, or do they just say out of everybody who's eligible, who are the people that are the most deserving this year? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how they decide that, but, uh, you know, it's a little bit surprised that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't chosen, but I think it's only a matter of, uh, you know, next year, the year after that he ends up getting in. that sometimes when you're playing a game especially the Leafs when the fans are negative like quiet or booing 
that is a bigger effect on the way the Leafs play than when the fans are positive. So I think that some teams might be benefiting from playing in an empty building versus others. How would you, how did you react to fan noise, I guess is the question. I, you know, I, I, I never really, fan, like fans, you know, saying something or yelling something, I would never hear individual fans. Obviously, I think that there's a big boost of energy. Like I, I remember, you know, in some big games at the Canadian Tire Center, just kind of as in between warmups and and the and the game starting, and you could hear the fans. Like it, it, it and you, when they were, we went on the ice, um, you know, to, after a goal, after a big play. Like there was always, it was huge in terms of the, um, you know, the feeling that you get, the boost that you get from the fans. Um, I, again, like fans booing. I don't think it, it. it there's a bigger boost for me from a from the fans cheering a home team rather than the the you know fans getting on us or whatever if we've had a bad power play or, or whatever. I think that for me that didn't affect me as much as it did like the positive feelings that you got from from them cheering for you. Well, there you go. All right, let's um let's dig into a couple of the series. Uh, we've already touched on them a number of times. Uh, you know, just sort of dabbling, but. Um, the Leafs, Blue Jackets, the Habs, Penguins, and I wanted to ask about um, what the, the one of the key moments in the Leafs series was was the hit, um, the hit by Dubois on Muzzin, uh, big cross check. You've got Muzzin going behind his own net, kind of parallel to the boards, not going into the end boards, parallel to the boards. The cross check comes. I don't know if he got hurt there or when he fell down and basically ended up head first into a Columbus player's knee or something like that. Uh, Todd, what did you think of the hit? Uh, was it something suspendable? Um, and how much will the Leafs miss having Muzzin? Well, I don't think it was suspendable. I think that if it was, like you said, it was parallel to the board, so the danger of the boards wasn't there. And I think it was kind of unfortunate that Muzzin kind of ended up off balance where he couldn't you know, fix himself and, and he ended up going in. I think he was injured when he, when he, hit, the, uh, the other, when he hit the Columbus player. It was an unfortunate play, and uh, in terms of how much the Leafs miss him, I think he's a steadying influence back there for for them. I think he's obviously one of their their guys who can, you know, stand up and 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 make a hit. Not not a obviously he's not like a, I think he's he was billed to be like a Norris Trophy candidate almost when they made the trade to get him by <laughs> what what the reaction was. I think he's a he's a solid defenseman. I think they will miss him because obviously they're they are, that's somewhere where they are really lacking. But uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of spread out the minutes with without him there. But I didn't think it was a suspendable play. I thought it was an unfortunate play that he ended up getting hurt by it. And we haven't seen yet, but uh, apparently for for the game tonight, they're probably going to dress seven D. So that might shed a little light on what kind of role they usually see a Muzzin playing for them. I think he's probably probably the only physical presence they have, maybe on the whole team, but certainly the only physical presence they have on the blue line. Obviously, leadership. He's a Stanley Cup winner. Uh, I, I think they're going to miss him a lot, actually. So let me ask you this. If Muzzin went to the hospital, this thus leaving the bubble, and let's say he had a stinger, and it wasn't anything serious that would keep him out for the rest of the series. That is, in fact, the case. He's out for the series. But let's say he was able to return for tonight's game as we record this. Like, would they have made an exception, do you think, Todd, 
uh, given that, you know, it wasn't like he went off to a wedding or to uh, the birth of a child or something like that. He went to the hospital, back to the hotel, but technically out of the bubble. Do you think the NHL would have made an exception for Muzzin if he was healthy and ready to go? It, it's, it, it reminds me so much of when they first had the, uh, the idea of the quiet room. And I remember the year that uh, Boston beat out Montreal in the playoffs, and it was overtime in Game 7, and it was uh, I think Horton scored the overtime winner. But in that series, um, it was Ferentz, I think, elbowed somebody from – Halpern, I think, from Montreal. And he was, like, back within a, a – a, he never even was gone at all, basically. And I remember, like, there's a lot of doubts on that, the quiet room and stuff like that. And I think the same doubts would have came in. But I think this one's different because I think because of the the COVID situation, I think that they would have at least had him do some tests to make sure that, you know, he, he is okay. Now, that, that's the one thing. I don't, I don't know from a medical standpoint if he did get it potentially infected, when would he actually know that he's infected? Like, that, that would come down to really... I think what the, the NHL would do is they would pass the buck to the medical officers and have them decide. It would have nothing to do with, you know, teams deciding. It would be strictly doctor's decision at that point. And, uh, you know, I think that for them, it's probably best that he, that he is out because they don't have to make that decision, that hard decision of probably saying he can't play because he was, uh, you know, pulled out of the bubble. Yeah, I think the original... Sorry, the original outline rules process, whatever, was that if you leave, uh, it's it's four days and got to have two negative tests in that time frame. But like you raise a good point, and there was a lot of talk about that today as to, you know, what are they? What would they really bend the rules and let the guy back in or not? And Todd hit the nail on the head. The the NHL's really dodged a bullet here in that he really is injured and can't play. So they really don't have to make that decision. But I think one of the rules that they kind of had with those four days, the four tests, was more so if you if you had to go home for a, a, a yeah. mat or something like that. I don't, I don't know whether or not they really had thought about needing hospital care and then, you know, but being okay and being right back at hockey, uh, I don't know exactly what they would have done in that situation. Of course, Todd, you've had uh, concussion uh, history as an NHL player, and you mentioned the quiet room. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to see the Matthew Barzell uh, collision with the end boards where he go- basically goes in, not that head first, like top of the head where you worry about spinal necessarily, but it was back of the head and he went in really hard. It was Frank Vetrano basically chasing him down on a semi-breakaway and shoving him toward the net. He avoids Bobrovsky, but goes tumbling into the end boards, hits his head. Like, how does, like, why do you have a quiet room if, if a collision like that with the end boards doesn't provoke a visit to said room? Well, exactly. Like, that's, that's something where, like, do, do, I presume they still have a spotter up in the stands, even though um, it, that's always been the really tough thing is for you know, teams or, or, or people up in the stands, whoever it is, the, you know, the NHL employee who has to basically radio down and say, that guy doesn't look right. You've got to send him to the quiet room. You know, I still believe that they should be doing more like that. And it's amazing to me because like my first concussion ever was I was playing in the minors, first year pro. Um, Claude Boivin, I think was the guy's name. He played, a, I think he had a cup of coffee with the Sens, I believe. Yes, he did. He buried me and it was, you know, I ended up 
going off the ice, I guess, going into a quiet room, basically, I guess, talking to the doctors, passing the tests, going back out, playing a shift, and be, I, I was blacked. I, I was blacked out. I I don't remember anything for about an hour and a half. Like I was completely. Then the trainer actually just didn't think I looked right on the ice, so didn't have me play after that shift. Just pulled me from the lineup. Right. But I don't right. I don't remember anything until I so. And I actually passed the doctor's test, and I asked <laughs> afterwards, and they were doing stuff like cognitive things where they were asking me questions. Okay, re- repeat those three words back. Those words back to me, and count backwards from a hundred by three, or you know what I mean. Yeah. And I yeah. was able to pass. But I was not obviously with it. I was completely blacked out. So was that before baseline tests, Todd? Uh, yes, that would have been. It was like it was '97. It would have been my first year pro, and uh, you know, obviously things have you know progressed since then in terms of how they how they treat those things. But uh, you know, that's that's a scary one for me when I think about it. That hey, I was able to like prove that I was you know able to get back out there when obviously clearly I wasn't able to get back out there. But it gives you some insight, possibly, into how the brain works. Like you were able to pass the test, apparently. <laughs> yeah, he, even if you're foggy and knocked unconscious, maybe we should ask different questions in this test, because Whitey still passed, right? <laughs> All right, so as long as we're, uh, since we're talking about, um, you know, specific incidents, uh, I'd be keen on getting both your takes, because I think the Muzzin one, I think we're all on the same page. That, uh, that there's nothing suspendable there. But then there's a little more debatable type of a hit in, in the Calgary-Winnipeg series, and that was Matthew Kachuk and uh, him going into the, um, the half boards, effectively, uh, and um, kind of getting his skate up and stepping on Mark Shifley, and he had to leave the game. Hasn't been back in the series yet, to my knowledge. Um, so what did you guys... Well, I'll start with you, Todd. What did you think of that hit and what... Kachuk's right skate was up to on that uh, particular play. Well, I personally, I think that, uh, you know, Shifley dumped it in and tried to avoid the hit. And I think he kind of his avoidance of the hit as much as he did, I think kind of threw Kachuk a little bit off of what he was doing. And I think almost like sometimes in the neutral zone, if the guy's going by you, you stick out an arm to, to get, I think that he was trying to stick his leg out when he was kind of off balance and his, his foot kind of went up. I don't think there was any malice there. I'm going to try and, you know, slice the back of this guy's, you know, calf or whatever. I don't, there's none, none of that, I don't think. So I would say it's a reckless play in terms of like a guy sticking an arm out to try and stop somebody from going by or, uh, you know, you remember would see guys do that with the knees and stuff like that, just trying to get a piece of the guy any, any way. I think it was a case of Kachuk losing his balance as a guy, you know, made a, made a quick turn that he didn't expect. And at the same time, still trying to get it. It was early in the first game, and I think that he's trying to get a piece of the guy to let him know that, hey, I'm coming at all times to, to finish my checks on you, and I will finish my checks on you. And I, like, I don't think there was any you know, intent to, uh, to actually do the damage that he ended up doing. What do you guys think? <laughs> I think Paul Maurice is out to lunch. I think he's doing his best to maybe fire up his troops like he's Pat Quinn or something. I would be interested in seeing the Abraham Zapruder film from the blue line camera that he's talking about. And it just seemed to me that the, there was a quick cutback or stop up by Shifley. Kachuk trying to stop and turn quickly. He did a little bit of a speed wobble. Maybe his foot came up, but there was nothing intentional about anything to me. 
it looked like it looked like uh, you know Greg Kennedy demonstrating a drill for his teams that he yeah. coaches. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> the tight turn technique right there, baby. So my feeling on it is, I think there's uh, intent, but not intent to injure to the degree that he did. I think there's only intent to impede, only intent to maybe be the annoying <laughs> kind of Weasley character that right to get a piece of him somehow. I think, though, just to finish the thought, I think he's get a piece of him, you know, trip him up a little bit, impede him. Uh, but I think that as we always talk about when somebody accidentally catches somebody else with a high stick, what do we say? Got to have care and control of your stick blade. I know you didn't do it on purpose, but the guy's bleeding like a stuck pig now because of you. And I feel like it should be treated kind of the same way. Because if, if you have to keep care and control of your stick blade, surely the same thing, Todd, would apply to your skate blade. Right. A, a penalty, uh, I wouldn't have had a problem with the penalty because it, 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 w- it ended up being somewhat of a slew foot, except it was the, you know, the, the skate blade did, did obviously some, some big time damage. So a penalty, no problem. I just didn't think it was worthy of a suspension like that uh, no. Like no. Paul Maurice did. And I, I think that Paul Maurice... I wonder what he knew by the time after the game. Like, did he know that line A was out as well? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I wonder if he knew that, man, we were dropping like flies here. And like you said, he's he's trying to get probably some calls going forward as well from the fact that he's lost a player. There, He probably knew there was going to be no suspension, but was maybe hoping that they would do something for a game. And uh, just, just playing the playoff mind games that, uh, that go on. Right. Well, he's, so- he's got a blue line camera feed that goes to the video coach, uh, former Ottawa resident Dan Singleton, by the way. Hmm. So Dan would have relayed to the to the coaches on the bench. He could have looked at it on an iPad right there on the bench. He saw this blue line feed that he's talking about, but we just didn't get to see it, right? I, I've seen one yeah. other shot kind of down the board shot of it, and then I saw the one kind of from across the ice. Those are the only two feeds that I've seen. Yeah, might just be simply trying to curry favor with the officiating. Maybe he believes it. Um, I mean, he's a pretty, uh, I mean, one thing you'd say about Paul Maurice, he's a pretty smart, articulate guy. Um, I have a hard time believing that he truly believes that Matthew Kachuk uh, would do that sort of thing, but uh, I can't speak for the guy. Uh, so of all the, uh, I mean, I don't want to spend all the time on, you know, these first few play-in games, but I wonder, start with you, Todd, of all the brewing upsets, all the potentials, all these uh, you know crazy underdog potentials that could happen here, which underdog do you think will finish the deal to you here in the next couple of days? Oh man, I, I guess I guess I'd say Chicago. I think that uh, you know they're the one team. I think that maybe Edmonton just seems that they just don't have the depth. You know, I think they're so reliant on their top guys. And uh, I think that they might be the team that uh, ends up not be, and then and then the goaltending as well that they that they have with Koskinen and Mike Smith. I'm not tremendously confident in in them, so uh, I would say maybe it's Edmonton that uh, you know can't win two straight to get back into this and uh, and move. And there's on. a first overall draft pick to be had as well. I mean that's Edmonton's thing. <laughs> that's true. But it's also Taylor Hall's thing too, so uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what'll happen. It, it, it it's going to be interesting from that standpoint, in the sense that they're like obviously you got New York already. Like there's always, uh, you know, conspiracy theorists in terms of who's going to get them right. Well, if it ended up that it was going to be Florida, Columbus, and all these teams like that that 
lose out, it wouldn't be, there'd be no conspiracy theorists, right? Carolina, but the fact that it's the Rangers, potentially Toronto, potentially Montreal, potentially, uh, you know, some big name teams, obviously, you know, Edmonton, uh, though there will be people, if he, go, if he goes to a team like that, there will be people that uh, will, will question it, that uh, what, what went on, obviously there's nothing to that, but people will always say that once it goes to a team that nobody wants him to go to. I too, I too would consider Chicago to be the the surprise here. It, it's it's ironic actually that I'm I'm just as surprised that they're up, but I wouldn't be surprised if they win. How's that? <laughs> Fair enough. I'm going to take Montreal to beat the Penguins at this stage. I think uh, I think this is such a an advantage for teams like both Montreal and Chicago to be playing with found money like this. I mean, remember yeah. these were two teams that. At the deadline, yeah, they were selling off, like Whitey said, and uh, and and you know they thought they were out of it, and all of a sudden they're airlifted into the magic of the NHL playoffs. Whitey, if that happened to you and your NHL team, say the Thrashers, badly out of the playoffs, and then all of a sudden we take off a four month break, and then you find out, hey, we're in the playoffs. Like, how loose would you be as a as a team? Well, maybe the Thrashers are still there. <laughs> maybe that was what we were. We just need, we needed uh, that opportunity. Um, but no, it obviously for for players who I think the one of the big things is is that you you sometimes wonder. I know back whenever the uh, the lockout happened, and I remember going to a players' meeting, and I remember seeing a couple of players, and I'm thinking to myself, they know something that I don't know. Because there's no way that they're ready to play. If, you know, like if, there's no way there's could be a season that guy can't play. He's too big. He's too heavy right now. Like he's not in shape. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether or not like there are some teams who are are flying. Like they're they're. I think sometimes you you get the young guys that you know are in great shape, and it's it's almost easier for them to come back and be ready to go right off the bat. I think that sometimes you got some teams who it makes it a little bit more difficult to to be in shape. And you know, each team I bet you has one guy who shows up in training camp every year, like 99% of the players are in the best shape of their life. Uh, and they tell the media that, but then there's always one or two that the coaches don't think that they're in good shape and they got a month to be able to work them back into shape and be able to play games and get ready for the regular season. And, but now it's no, you're, you're right into like getting into these big time playoff games. And I think that there's some teams that, uh, you know, maybe have a few guys who are having trouble out there just because they aren't feeling as, normally as, as good as they would normally do. I think this, the style of play that your team employs also plays a role here. If you're a clog up the neutral zone, slow them down, checking roll four lines kind of team, I think it's much easier for you to play right now. If you're an up-tempo puck possession team, like look at Pittsburgh, their timing is off, their passing's off, their their power play's atrocious. And I think that's those are skill guys who need a little more time to get ready to go and get to get their timing back. Whereas Montreal is just playing a, a dump and jump, uh, you know, one, three, one clog the neutral zone kind of game. And it's much easier for them to execute than it is for Pittsburgh. Have you guys not been impressed by, you know, the top three guys like Ben Sherrod's kind of been a revelation. And then obviously Petrie and, uh, and Weber, the three of those guys have really done a great job for, uh, for Montreal. And then obviously Carey Price as well. So it uh, it that's one series I can still see end up going back to Pittsburgh. I just think that uh, you know they're, they're obviously a veteran team and they've made some moves to to make a run for it this year. So 
I'm uh, looking forward to seeing Game Four in that series. It's been a, it's been a fun series. Yeah, you this gotta is... believe that Pitt, Pitt, Pittsburgh's just too good. They gotta come back and win this. In theory, in theory, I mean, yeah. By I, I mean this when you're in a best of five, right? It doesn't take much uh, flukiness True. for a, for an underdog to come along and win. And that Petrie goal, like off the su- bad angle, off off the side of the goalie's helmet and into the top corner, like that's uh, that's the nature of a best of five and and why I was never a big fan of it. Like a, a team like Pittsburgh that I think was about, I don't know, like at least double digits clear of the Montreal Canadiens in the regular season. Uh, you know, they, they have to play a best of five against these guys and Montreal being loose. It just, like we talked about off the top, it feels like what the NHL has done here, even though it's only a one-off, it's one year extenuating circumstances. So you can't get too worked up about it. But if this became the norm moving forward, Man, it sure seems to render the NHL regular season completely worthless. But I want to move on to talking a little bit about the draft lottery. It's coming up. uh, The second phase of it we will find out who will be number one uh, on Monday. And, uh, Greg, you had a bunch of, like, scary (laughs) ideas as to, you know, if one of these teams, like, if 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 the certain teams, like, actually have the balls go their way, yeah, it's 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 like this. You have the potential here. Remember, everybody's got a twelve point five percent chance to win the draft lottery. So, uh, Alexi Lafreniere could be sitting there with a twenty five percent chance of either playing with Crosby Malkin or playing with with uh, McDavid Drysaddle. That's just it blows my mind. Like, do you not want him to go somewhere? Like, would that not be fun to watch though? Like NBA, sure. NBA loads up and puts. But, you know, great teams. I, I don't know. I think it'd be fun to see him go somewhere where he's going to have, like, I do, I do think it's going to be like, don't forget he was like, if it was a regular season, if it was if like that draft, lo- draft lottery, it was like what the 13th pick or whatever it was, won the draft lottery. I forget what the number was or whatever. So he was going to go to a fairly good team. Um, like it, it wasn't going to be a bottom feeder that, but so I, I don't mind the idea that, you know, if, if I, I'd love to see him play for Edmonton. If Edmonton lost out, I wouldn't mind that. I'd sooner that. Would you not sooner that than Toronto? Oh God! <laughs> Anybody but Toronto. And, and to Greg's point, I mean, it sure seems like an all-star line that you're talking about. But at the same time, you know, those are great duos. But uh, they, sh- if they're that great, they should be. You know, they should be showing up here and and making short work short work of the teams like the Habs and the Hawks. Yeah, I just can't you know, just imagine you roll out Crosby Gunsel in a stiff and then the very next shift you roll out Malkin Lafreniere in a stiff like holy smokes yikes so let's tackle what the Sens might get up to uh, I wonder we've talked about it quite a bit Whitey what do you think uh, I guess there's two options really in each case the Sens are going to pick at number three and number five overall at number three are you either Stutzel or Byfield, and at number five, I'm curious to know: Are you a forward or a defenseman with that selection? Well, I, I yeah, I think that it's going to be obviously Lafreniere, and I hope that whoever they send up to the podium, you know, remember the uh, Claude Giroux uh, incident in terms of uh, forgetting the name. But there's another guy I think in the draft that it's like instead of Alexi Lafreniere, it's something very Alex Laferriere or something like there's another guy that is like so close to the same thing 
But uh, obviously, you take who's ever left that that LA doesn't take, whether it's Byfield or Stutzel, I imagine. And then at at five, you know, I, I, Jake Sanderson's a guy that seems to be you know moving up, and and people seem to to, to really like him. And uh, so I I think I would be more so the uh, the defense route for the uh, the second the second pick in the first round, fifth overall. Resetting yours, Greg. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I've thought all along. I think at at three, it's whichever one's left, and at five, it's whichever one of the defensemen is left. I I really think other people are going to make these decisions for the Senators. See, I I, I wonder if if Detroit ends up taking a a forward. And uh, well, and then you have the choice of both defensemen. You have the righty and the lefty. Obviously, the lefty is a bigger, um, you know, really good skating defenseman. And then you have the righty, who's uh, you know, a little bit on the on the smaller side compared to Sanderson. But uh, that'll be an interesting decision if they have the choice of both of them, who they end up picking. Well, that's a couple of months away just yet before we get to the draft and. Uh, well, we don't know exactly when this will go down, but there's certainly lots of discussion, Whitey about the Sens rebranding, that they might go back to the uniforms that you wore with that 2D logo. And uh, I wonder, would you be a fan of that uh, or are you a fan of the more modern style? No, I've, I've always been, I think it's around like 98, 99-ish is, is the jerseys that I like the most. I think that uh, I'd love for them to you know, be back in a, in, a, in a black jersey with the 2D logo and the white jersey with the 2D logo. That's me. I, uh, I I love that kind of era of, of jersey for the Sens, and uh, I hope that that's what uh, ends up happening here. Obviously, it's been something that's been kind of simmering, uh, you know, for a long time with fans. They've, they've, there's, a, there's a lot of people who would be excited, I think, about it going back to a 2D logo. So far more important than how they look is how they play. And uh, based on what you're seeing, <laughs> um, and, I, and, and I, I say that, with a smile, because I mean, I really don't care what they wear. Uh, just don't wear that Sens one with the S E N S like written out. I don't like that one. Like that, other than that, I'll, I'll only put my foot down on that one. But as far <laughs> as how how they play, um, how long do you think before this team is competing for a playoff spot again? Well, I think this off season's huge for them. I think that uh, we don't know when exactly the off season's going to be. It looks like it's sometime. Uh, what late late October till uh, the end of November, something like that. But the fact of the matter is, they have cap space, and as you can see with what happened with with Vegas in terms of some of the deals that they were able to do um, with with the expansion draft coming a year from now, um, it, they have the ability to do some things and take on some a contract maybe to to help a team out. So this is a huge season in the offseason to see you know what players kind of potentially come available you see a guy like JT Miller last night obviously they had to give up a lot to get him uh, in the Vancouver Canucks but the fact of the matter is is the reason that he was shipped out was because Tampa Bay had money issues and so they had to get rid of somebody so basically it comes I don't think they, they were necessarily saying we have to trade this guy but the best offer they got was for a guy like JT Miller whether it's you know it was a Tyler Johnson or a Kalorn or whoever else could have been traded to alleviate some cap space, you know JT Miller was the was the guy that ended up getting moved out. So I think there's potential to improve because of some of these with a flat cap. I think there's a potential for them to get a, a, a good player or two to really kind of you know fast forward this rebuild and a, you know a real veteran guy that can really help them. 
But at the same time, this this whole thing is predicated on their development of their young players. And, uh, you know, the Shabbat and Kachucks, we see them. But it, it, to me, it's more the Formantons and the Bathersons and guys like that in terms of Logan Brown, which of them, and Norris, wh- like, which of those guys becomes players that are really taking a step up and, uh, and becoming, you know, really good bona fide NHL players. All right, so Pierre Lebrun today, fellas, uh, talked about the seven non-playoff general managers. That would include, of course, Pierre Dorian of the Senators. Apparently, they petitioned the NHL for a two-week head start on training camp. According to one executive, speaking anonymously, he says, all we want is what the other teams got. Uh, Todd, do you think that's fair? The seven non-playoff teams get a two-week head start on training camp? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't mind it at all because I think it's, uh, it's a huge difference for these players. Like I've had seasons where, you know, you miss the playoffs, you're done early April and you have off until, you know, mid September or whatever. So like, that's a normal off season, but this is unprecedented in terms of you're going to be potentially off for what, like nine months. So, you know, I, I think that, uh, for teams that weren't able to be a part of first of all, it wasn't a normal season. They added in eight other teams to be able to be a part of this. So I, I think it's not a ter- terrible ask to be able to get a couple of extra weeks to be able to get them skating. Uh, because the, the teams that go all the way are not going to have very long, I don't think, in between. Even less than they normally do in a normal season from what, mid, mid-late June to, you know, they usually get like three months off. This is going to be a lot shorter. I have no problem with it um, to be able to give them a little bit, uh, not really a head start, but just kind of be able to get them back together just like other teams have been able to do right now. The biggest thing about it is it's not so much for the veteran players. I think it's for the young guys. I think like this this has been a tremendous thing for some of these young Like We look at Nick Robertson, would never have played in the playoffs in a normal season, but he's able to play for the Leafs right now because of this. So that's a mm-hmm. huge advantage to those teams to be able to do this format this year. So I don't think it's a huge ask for them to be able to do it for uh, for the seven teams that, uh, first of all, you didn't give them an advantage in the lottery, really. And uh, I don't think that you're doing that much of an advantage. But it just gives them the ability to have their young guys get a little bit extra time with the big club. Greg? I think the only hurdle here will be the Players Association, right, Todd? I would think there'd probably be... But I really can't imagine a player who's been off for nine months balking at getting to go back two weeks ahead of everyone else. Like, really, I'm sure these guys are going to be itching to get back on the ice. So I think the only hurdle will be NHLPA approval, obviously. Well, and the thing is, is that you normally, uh, you know, late summer, I was the guy in Ottawa here when I was was playing in the league that I would run, you know, an off-season thing for for local pros, like the, the local guys or whatever, and... It, you know, we'd do a few drills and then you'd do, uh, you know, so we'd, we'd scrimmage. And, you know, the, that's the one thing I'm sure that uh, after having nine months of that and, and obviously some skills, uh, things with, with, you know, skill people around town, wherever you are, uh, different different things, it would be nice to be able to have something structured like, uh, like these guys have had and just kind of... But I, I do think that the biggest benefit is going to be for the young guys. And I know yeah. yesterday... They, they came out with the uh, December 1st, I think it is, the OHL has kind of said that's when they're going to start the OHL. So 
I don't know how that would work timing wise with their young guys to be able to, you know, miss the OHL start to be able to be part of a, an extended NHL training camp or how that would all work out. But uh, anytime you can get your young players around your NHL players, it's a benefit. And they've been able to do it. They have young guys that are a part of this. Um, and I think that that's been a huge benefit to some of these teams. Like you think of like Broberg and stuff like that from Edmonton. He's there. He's he's able to be a part of it. And teams like Ottawa, their young guys aren't able to be a part of something like that. So I think it's not a huge ask for those seven teams. I think it's a, it's a fair thing, and uh, we'll see what goes on with it. I was pretty happy to see that December 1st date floated for the CHL. To have them try to start in October like normal and then you know start, make the team, play for a month and a half, then go to an NHL camp, maybe make it, maybe not – you know, then the, then the CHL team stuck trying to replace a guy, you know, two months into their season. If they start December 1st, it's close to normal for them where guys will go off to NHL camps and they have a better idea of who's going to be around for them come their season, like for the 67s. All right, let's close it out today with Whitey Trivia. Huh? <laughs> what I've got for you is a fantastic like questions about Whitey for Whitey. Correct. Okay. Not technically his own trivia though. Oh, it's okay. questions about Whitey's in general. So oh. <laughs> starting to sound racist. Um, <laughs> Whitey so, Bulger? No, no. <laughs> They're going to stick to hockey. So we'll, we'll, get, we'll let Todd take the first run at it, see if you can fill in any blanks that he misses, but I have a feeling he's got a shot at going five for five on this. We'll see, though. Despite being, and we're going to take you out of this because you qualify for this too, despite being a fairly common surname, only five guys in the last 40 years have played at least 200 NHL games and had the surname White. Can you name those five, Whitey? Peter White. Ooh, you got the one right out of the gate that I thought you might struggle on. He was Peter- my uh, – I played with him in the uh, minors in, in Philadelphia when I got traded there, and he was actually married to, to Bobby Clark's daughter. And I, I he, he ended up getting called up and played playoffs and stuff like that. And so whenever I ended up with Ottawa the next year, I'd be at face-offs, and they'd be like, straighten up, Peter, straighten up. <laughs> well, you guys, you guys a little bit apart, but – like insane CCHL scores. Yeah, like he played was, with uh, Luke Shabbat, I believe. Did he not? Like uh, he was Pembroke, I think. He was he yeah, was. big time score. Like two hundred fifty six points in nineteen eighty eight. I thought your stats in Canada were insane, and then I saw two hundred fifty six points for the Lumber Kings in nineteen eighty eight. That's crazy. Yeah, he was a you know very smart hockey player. Um, Colin White. Colin White sends and Colin White New Jersey Devils who won a Stanley Cup in 03. And and you know what? He also played for the Hall Olympics. If you look at his career trajectory, he does something really unique. Because most guys who become enforcers, they start out as offensive threats and then it all dwindles away as they become full-time tough guys. He did it just the opposite. He's a 300 penalty minute guy in Hull like two years in a row. And then he becomes a pretty reliable defenseman with modest penalty minute totals. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I guess 
I don't know what the reason would be. Like, I think that he he was willing to. I think that uh, he just became a good – like, it's amazing sometimes with Lou Lamorello in terms of some of the guys that he's had and, and really liked. And, and, like, he's been very loyal to, to lots of guys like that. You think of a guy like Andy Green, who's obviously back with them again right right, right now, but hmm. it, with the Isles. But it, it's just, uh, you know, Colin White was a guy. I played against him obviously quite a bit because of the fact that uh, we we played, uh, you know, in the same conference with Ottawa and New Jersey, and obviously in the playoffs. Two more. Two two more. I, I, I gotta say, there's a Pat White. No, no, nope. no. But his partner, Pat Stapleton's partner. Oh, okay. What was his name? That's that's outside 40 years, though. Oh, it's like, so no Bill White. Correct. Okay, wasn't there a defenseman that played for the Leafs? Yes. Uh, um, and maybe Edmonton, too? Ian? Correct. Oh, Ian White. Yes, 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 yes. Ian White. Okay. Uh, there was a guy who played in Montreal. Ryan White. Ryan White. Yes, you're right. I should know that. That's my son's name. <laughs> I should have. I, should, I totally forgot. He, he was a feisty guy that played for uh, for Montreal. Was he on the ice for that? Uh, he, started. he started it. He started it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He and uh, Zach Smith off the draw. They start chirping and start whacking at each other. And uh, I don't exactly. I think that basically Zach Smith was wincing for a sec from getting a chop, and then Ryan White and Jared Cowan then got into it. Jared Cowan mopped the ice with the guy, and then it was on. <laughs> and there it is. Famous Whitey's trivia, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's the only question? Uh, well, I was going to go to, we're getting a bit late in the game, but uh, we could go episode 22, reviewing the Sens who wore number 22. Oh, yeah. We did that last week, didn't we? In lieu of birthdays, then, really quickly, reviewing right. the Sens who wore 22. Go ahead, Whitey. You go first. One each. Chris Kelly? Chris Kelly is correct. Sean Van Allen? Vanner is correct. Warrensy, it's your turn. Well, I got, I got them in front of me. I know a bunch of them, but I, I'm cheating. Uh, uh, Eric Condra? Correct. I'm out. Hang on. Oh, uh, Zaitsev? He's had time, Whitey, to look up uh, look up hockey DB. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, wait. There's one, one. Um, Norm McIver. Yep, first season led the Sens in scoring. I'm done. <laughs> and this guy well, actually, I've... this guy had uh, two points. I think he uh, led the Sens in scoring in their first game in their modern day history. Longtime Winnipeg Jet Doug Smale. You all said Jamie Rivers for a cup of coffee. Same deal with, with oh, yeah. Antti Torman. And we certainly wish Antti Torman and all the best because he's. Uh, they announced uh, last week that he's battling cancer. He's coaching over in Europe somewhere. Uh, we wish him all the best. Uh, that'll do it for today's show. Whitey, we wish you all the best, of course. Uh, good luck with uh, everything minor hockey related. Hope we can have you on again soon. Absolutely. We'd love to. Now that hockey's back, uh, we'd love to uh, to be back on with you guys for sure. Thanks, Whitey. Great show, fellas. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week here on the Sins Nation podcast. Thanks for being with us on the Sins Nation podcast. If you enjoyed the show and want to help the nation grow, please visit SinsNationPodcast.com. Leave a positive rating or review. Share the show with other Sins fans. Become a Patreon member or subscribe for free and never miss a single episode. Until next time. 
Go Sins Go. 